Our Father in heaven, we bow down to you because you owe everything and we are yours. This is your world. This is your place. And so as your own, we come before you and we humbly bow and we worship you. We exalt your holy name and we pray that you may further humble us that you may further reveal to us the need for Christ, that you would expose to us the depth of our sin, and that you may allow us to, in a fresh way, to learn more of Jesus Christ and why we need him, why we are in him. And just as we study page after page, verse after verse, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that our hearts would just ignite with praise, adoration, and that we may look to him and that we may go into the world and proclaim his mercies and his love and his grace. I pray that if there's anyone here in this room who is not yet saved, who hasn't bowed their knee to Jesus, I pray would you just stir them their hearts, pray, speak to them by the Spirit. Would you just expose to them the state of their soul without Christ? And may they flee to Jesus. We pray, Father, to this end. Amen. Well, Arthur mentioned that the storm continues uh, this morning. Well, I got bad news for you. It's going to get worse because we're going to start dealing with demonic activity, <laughs> not just storm this morning. Uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We come to another well-known miracle of Jesus in which he casts out demons from two men who had been just ravaged and oppressed by them. And what makes this account exciting for many is the mention of pigs. Mention of pigs who ultimately suffer the bitter end as they run off the cliff, we read, and they perish in the waters. Now, since the mention of pigs is so unusual, especially at this time in the gospel, so often they become the primary focus of this passage. Uh, Michael P. Green, he writes this, much ink and compassion have been spilled upon the pigs by scholars who no doubt enjoy their bacon for breakfast and their pork for dinner, but the main point is not pigs. Interesting, I just, uh, kind of a funny, funny moment. I, I love bacon myself. I'm sure there are many bacon lovers here. In fact, I got a bit worried earlier this week when I cross, came across a USA Today article that was entitled this, could you live without bacon, question mark? Bacon may disappear in California as pig rules take effect. So apparently there was a law passed a couple of years ago which should take effect soon about the treatment of animals and that will affect how they treat cows and therefore by extension it's going to affect the amount of bacon that will be produced and therefore the amount of bacon that will be in our fridge. But anyways, um, I don't know if you noticed, but we value our rights in America. 
And there is such a thing as animal rights as well. Animals, animal rights, they're okay, but unfortunately in some ways, animal rights, they trump often human rights. In fact, issues that have to do with animal abuse generate much more discussion and response from upset readers than about the violence against humans. We get a similar reaction here in this passage. Two men were miraculously rescued from demonic possession, and yet the people who knew them were far more concerned about the collateral damage from their deliverance. Christ's power to save sinners was displayed to them in such a dramatic way, and yet they rejected him because he allowed the demons to infest their precious swine. You know, just like in Jesus' day, we too could miss the point of the entire illustration, the point of the entire story. And as is the case in all of Matthew, especially Matthew 8 and 9, the big picture and the big point is all about Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned as we were going through Matthew that Matthew organizes his gospel not in a chronological manner, but in a thematic manner. And I want you to see what he's doing here in, in this chapter here and in chapter 9 as he continues to reveal Jesus' identity. If you're in Matthew chapter 8, we left off last Sunday in verse 27. Look with me at verse 27, and here is what Matthew is writing. And he says, the men, after the storm had ceased, after Jesus rebukes the storm, the storm or the men were amazed and said, here's their question. Who is this? What kind of man is this? Well, Matthew embeds the answer for his readers in the next few stories. Notice that in our passage today, Jesus is identified as the son of God. Verse 29, and they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? And so Matthew answers in this section, This one you're wondering about, he is the son of God. And in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, he is presented as the son of man. Verse 6, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Later on, as we will continue to study in 9 through 14 of chapter 9, Jesus refers to himself as a great physician, physician. And later, in verses 14 through 17, he refers to himself as the bridegroom. And so Matthew uses these stories to point us to the riches of Christ and the salvation that we possess in him. He is the son of God who deals with Satan's demonic kingdom. He's the son of man who forgives our sin. He is the physician who mercifully heals us. And he's the bridegroom who whose return we anxiously await. So who is this Jesus, friends? Well, Matthew goes on to answer, and he says he is everything we could ever want. He is everything we ever need. I want us to begin reading again in verse 27, and we'll read through the end of chapter 8 as we set the context for our study this morning. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. When they came to the other side, into the country of Gadarenes, two men 
who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him saying, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave the region. As we go through this encounter of Christ with these men, I want us to to see what Matthew presents for us, that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus is the Son of God who has authority and willingness to rescue the powerless and the unwilling from their bondage of sin. This is, this is the point, that Jesus being the Son of God, he has the authority and willingness to go after the most desperate who don't think they need him to expose their need, to rescue them, to save them, to love them. Even as we will see, he will be rejected soon after. In this passage here, we see the beginning of Jesus's war on Satan and his angels, which will crescendo on the cross and ultimately when he cast him and all of his servants into the lake of fire. But there are practical implications that I want you to see to Jesus being the son of God. Practical implication. There are three that I want us to pick out from this passage as we go verse by verse to the end of Matthew chapter eight. Number one, because Jesus is the son of God, he delivers from the bondage of sin. Because Jesus is the son of God, he delivers from the bondage of sin. Number two, he destroys the work of the enemy. And number three, he designates what is truly valuable. He has a say in what we or whom we should value above most. Number one, because Jesus is the son of God, he delivers from the bondage of sin. Matthew, he continues his narrative by following Jesus in verse 28 to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And on their way there, as you remember, they had encountered a storm and his disciples were exposed to their lack of faith and Jesus rebuking the storm, but also gently rebuking them, encouraged them to follow his lead and trusting God's presence, his power, his goodness in all of lives circumstances. That was last Sunday. Now they're safely on the eastern shore of the sea. And we read that they made their way to the country of the Gadarenes. This is predominantly a Gentile area, as we will see from some of these details here. If you look back to verse 18 in your Bibles, one of the reasons why Jesus wanted to cross over to the other side was just to spend some time alone away from the crowds. He says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave them orders to depart. 
Not many of the Jews, listen, would follow Jesus to this region. It was an unclean region, full of Gentiles. However, in, think about this, in pursuit of seclusion and privacy, Jesus knows that there are desperate men who need to be delivered and who need to be restored. Did Jesus have to go here to this region to escape the crowds? He could have picked another place, but it seems that from his sovereign perspective, he had to. It's almost like this is the place that he picked to go because there was business to do. Similar to how, remember in John chapter 4, verse 4, he, quote, had to go through Samaria into Galilee. Remember that encounter? Because he knew that there would be a woman at the well who needed to be rescued, who needed to be restored. So get this, being on this mission to deliver the helpless from the bondage of sin, Jesus goes where no one dares to go. Jesus goes where no one dares to go. No Jew would ever go here. And the text tells us that no one, Jew or Gentile, dare to pass this way because of the extreme violence of these two men. Do not enter was the sign that was placed next to the street. No trespassing or, or enter at your own risk, so to speak. Matthew tells us that this place was actually a graveyard full of caves or tombs where, where these men found their housing. They would not have been literally inside the tombs, but as David Hill comments, the reference may be to the little antechamber in front of the rooms in which the bodies were laid. No doubt this was a perfect place for the devil, the enemy of our souls to exert his power among the dead. But think about this. Here's the point. The son of man, our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, he enters the enemy territory to begin to rescue, to begin his rescue mission until one day, think about this, he would ascend a hill called Golgotha, which means the place of skulls, to conquer and subdue the enemy through the cross. Already, during his ministry here, he's already setting in motion what will climax there on the cross. And Jesus goes where no one dares to go because he wished to deliver man who no one would or, or could deliver. We read that Jesus was met by two men who were demon-possessed. Two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of their tombs, verse 28 says. D.A. Carson points out that demon possession was rare if it occurred at all in the Old Testament. And there was very few examples after the gospel records into Acts and beyond. And he says, in the Bible, Demon possession is part of the upsurge of evil opposing Jesus in the time of his incarnation. It appears that the powers of darkness, they converge at this point in history to oppose and to derail Jesus's ministry for they knew who the God man was. And we think, as we think through this encounter, we need to remember few things for us, those who have read scripture, and, and just apply some 
theology here. Remember that Satan and his demonic forces, they were originally made to know and to enjoy God. They were originally the angels who worshiped God, but they have rebelled. When they rebelled, they were cast down. They still have great power, superior strength, and intelligence to men, but not ultimate power. Remember that God is still is in full control, as we will soon find out. But there's another thing. Because of the fall, sin has brought man under Satan's power, under Satan's rule, under his dominion. 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2.1 and 2 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. In another passage, 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul writes that the God of this world, the God, lowercase g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So here are two men. They're driven mad by these dark forces living in tombs. And we're not told how they ended up this way. But whatever the reason was, the root cause for all demonic possession is sin. Sin always opens the door for the devil to influence and take control over the lives of men. And we see the effects of this demonic possession. They were extremely violent, extreme violence. In fact, when you, when you read throughout the Gospels about demon possession and the effects that it, that it brought to these men, it was always enmity, always destroying of, of men's personhood, fighting, convulsions, Extreme violence, hate, terror, unbelief. Friends, this is what Satan does and this is what sin does in general. It destroys man's dignity. It produces enmity between men. It makes men unfit to live in the regular society, what to speak of the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus, the son of God, he understands the pain. He knows of the bondage of sin. He is aware. Remember, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus enters the synagogue on a Sabbath, takes out the scroll of Isaiah, opens it up, and reads this, the fulfillment of Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release of the captives. It's a huge prophecy that told Israel that when you see a man who comes on the scene and he proclaims the release of captives. He frees people from demonic possession. He is the one. He is the promised Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the one who preaches the true gospel. The anointed Messiah goes where no one else dares to go because he alone is able and he is willing to deliver from the bondage of sin. Because Jesus is the only person whom Satan cannot overcome. Do you remember four chapters ago, Matthew chapter four? 
Matthew recorded how devil tempted Jesus when he was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days. And again and again, he, he tried to make Jesus sin, but Jesus resisted him every single time without fail until Satan gives up and leaves. Thus, Jesus demonstrated his power against Satan's temptations. And here, four chapters later in Matthew chapter eight, we see Jesus now demonstrating his power against Satan's armies. Jesus is the son of God who seeks out desperate sinners to deliver them from bondage. But how does he deliver? How does he do it? We find out next that because Jesus is the son of God, he delivers from this bondage of sin by destroying the work of the enemy. By destroying deliverance through destruction. Which brings us to our second point. Because he is the son of God, he destroys the work of the enemy. Have you ever wondered why or what was the ultimate purpose for Christ's incarnation? If you take all of scripture and you say, why? What was the point of it all? Well, John, I love what John says in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He says this. He just plain states that the Son of God appeared for this purpose. Don't you love clear statements? Like when you have a question and there's a perfect answer, this is why. So why did the Son of God appear? John writes, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of of the devil. He came to defeat the enemy. And he did exactly that on the cross. Yet even during his earthly ministry, Jesus gives us glimpses of the defeat that would ultimately climax at Golgotha. Look at verse 28. When Jesus came on the scene, it says two men met him. Matthew Henry writes this, it is an instance of the power of God over the devils that notwithstanding the mischief they study to do by and to these poor creatures, yet they could not keep them from meeting Jesus Christ who ordered the matter so as to meet them. It was his overpowering hand that dragged these unclean spirits into his presence, which they dreaded more than anything else. Jesus, friends, he had an appointment. And he says, I'm going to go there because there are two desperate sinners who need to be released. And I'm going to go and I'm going to go and demonstrate my power over the enemy. He's on the mission. You know, sort of like the time when, when we met Christ, when he called out to us, when he opened up our eyes to see Sort of like he did to Paul, where Paul says, after I saw him, I didn't sit there and discuss the matter. I simply fell and I worshiped and acknowledged him as Lord. Nothing could stand in his way when Jesus is pursuing his own. But listen, as soon as the two men encounter Jesus, they begin to defy him. Well, look what Verse 29 says, and they cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Literally, what to us and to you? That's what the text says. What to us and to you? Almost like, what do we have to do with one another? Why are you here? This is not your territory. We've been running and ruling this place. Why are you here now? 
These men see absolutely no common ground between themselves and Jesus. Why? Because they know who he is, son of God. They didn't ask him. They declared his name. And I find it very interesting that comparing to the other account with this one here, that while his disciples are wondering who Jesus is, the demons declare plainly, son of God. They recognize that the man standing before them is Jesus, the anointed Messiah sent from heaven to proclaim the good news of redemption, which in turn means judgment for them. Judgment for them. That's why they ask, have you come here? Look at that, verse 29. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time? Friends, many people today, they refuse to believe that Jesus is the son of God and they scoff whenever we tell them that the son of God is coming back to judge the world one day. They don't believe it. And yet, the demons fully believe that Jesus is the Son of God who is coming to judge the world, and they tremble. And, and James, in chapter 2, verse 9, basically confirms that fact. He says, the demons believe and shudder, but that doesn't save them. That, that kind of faith doesn't save them. Every unbeliever should take careful note of this. Notice that they ask, have you come here? Look, look at the text in verse 29. Have you come here? And um, what does here mean? There are a couple of options here. It, it can either mean here like the country of Gadarenes or, or here could mean the earth. Like you're the son of God. Did you come here to earth to judge us? And are you coming here now before the time? With the eschatological kind of anti-time language here that they employ, have you come here to torment? So there's judgment, and then there's before the time, referring to the end time. I think that they're referring to the latter, the earth. The demons here, they recognize that their ultimate fate will be doom, in fact. And they're wondering, is now the time that, that we're going to be judged? It's also interesting, I think, another indicator that they know of Jesus' preexistence before his incarnation. When they declare to Jesus that you are the Son of God, they know that that Son of God belongs in heaven. He preexisted before with the Father. And are you now the Son of God coming now here to this earth to deal with us? All demons fear Christ coming because they know it spells doom for them. The parallel account in Luke chapter 8, 31, it relates that they, they pleaded with him not to send them into the abyss, meaning the, the bottomless pit where the devil himself will be imprisoned according to Revelation 20. The demons knew that Jesus had the power and has the authority to send them there as he desired. And they would have absolutely no choice but to say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Even as they ravaged these poor men and they did whatever they wanted to do to them, when the Son of God comes and when he speaks, 
all the other powers, they acknowledge the authority of Christ and say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. According to Mark's parallel account of the same incident, Jesus asked one of the men and he says, what is your name? And he answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion in the Roman Empire, I, I looked it up and just had conflicting reports, but it's anywhere from 5,000 to 6,000. Some commentators say it's five, some say 5,600, some say 6,000, but listen, that's a lot of number. It's not just two demons, they're at least 5,000 to 6,000 demons. It's a huge concentration of darkness against the Son of God. No wonder nobody dares to enter and to come next to them. But notice they understand their subordinate position. They ask in verse 31, they ask, if you're going to cast us out, and they are assuming that he will, you will cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Like we can't go there by ourselves, but send us there. And Jesus, think the Son of God, permits them. They leave the two men and enter the swine, and the swine run off the cliff, and they perish in the waters. One commentator says that the demons prefer the pigs to the abyss, but when the pigs rush into the lake, it becomes their abyss. Now, why did the demons make such a request? We don't know for sure, but as I mentioned earlier, the devil hates God, and he hates man. And the enemy of our souls would use every opportunity he has to harm God's creatures and also in this instance to stir up opposition against Jesus in this city. Yet Jesus, knowing it all, he permits it. And and he sort of gives a visual representation of the spiritual deliverance of these men. Demons, remember, there are spirits. We, We cannot see them And so perhaps Jesus, he wanted to demonstrate that that these men were truly delivered by by making this departure of the legion of demons sort of visible to human eye. But also consider this whole imagery of the sea and the pigs running off the cliff and perishing in the waters. You know, casting something into the sea is also used throughout the Bible as a picture of the permanent riddance of the problem. Permanent riddance of the problem. Remember when the Egyptians, they were pursuing Israelites and and they come to the Red Sea and the Israelites are freaking out and and the Lord parts the sea and they walk through it and as the Egyptians follow, the sea closes in on them and they perish in the waters never to pursue them again. It's one of my other favorite passages in the Old Testament, Micah chapter seven, verse 19, when, when the prophet wants to assure his people, that God would forgive their sins and remember them no more. He says this, he will again have compassion on you. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. Isn't this also a picture of the permanent removal of our sins that Christ had accomplished on the cross as we read earlier from Colossians chapter two, having forgiven us all our 
transgressions. And so by casting out the demons and restoring these men, Jesus began to show how he will destroy not only the forces of evil, but the author of evil himself. Church, friends, the the son of God judged demons with one little word, go. In fact, if you have a red letter Bible, it's interesting, it's just a lot of black here around verse 28, 29, and so the only thing that you see is that red little word, go. That's encouraging. It reminds me of Martin Luther's hymn, The Mighty Fortress is Our God, and one of the stanzas says this, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word. Beloved, as long as Jesus Christ is in you, there's no reason for you to be fearful of the enemy. 1 John 4, 4 says, you are of God, little children, and and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. On this side of the cross, after the pronouncement of, of Jesus as recorded in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. Brothers, Satan and his enemies are defeated foes. And our focus should not be on them. Our focus should be on Christ and praising him for the victory he has secured on the cross. And if you trust Christ, the son of God today, then you are delivered from the bondage of sin and fear of death. Oh, listen to what the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 and 15 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. How wonderful it is to be delivered from sin, beloved. All praise to him. Oh, thank our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, church, we see again that Jesus is the Son of God who has authority and who is willing to rescue the powerless, to rescue the unwilling, to rescue the the helpless from their bondage of sin. He delivers from bondage. He destroys the work of the enemy. And finally, the Son of God He designates what is truly valuable. Let us look at verses 33 and 34 now. He designates what is truly valuable. Listen, earlier in the sermon, I contrasted this episode here with that of John chapter 4, the woman at the well. And remember this, we're not going to read that account, but remember what happened to her as Jesus revealed his identity to her And her need for him, she saw that what she was longing for, what she was after, 
and trying to find that in her relationship with men, Jesus says, I'll give you all of that. I will give you waters that if you drink, you will never thirst again. And she believes and she testifies, this is the Messiah. What happens to her, she runs back to town to tell everyone about him. And many come out to hear Jesus Christ and to respond by faith. And so that their testimony is no longer do we believe your word about him, but we believe him. We now see the very same thing you are seeing. Well, here, a similar thing is happening, at least initially. And then, as if to contrast the people of Samaria, the entire city rejects Jesus here. Considering the miracle, these, I'm thinking these, these people should have been thankful. I mean, very thankful that Jesus had delivered the two men from their oppression. I mean, he had finally solved the problem they could not solve on their own. These men were running around. They were terrorizing everyone in sight. And Jesus was not only merciful to the man, but to the entire town who were no longer threatened by them. I mean, if they had only realized who this man was, they should have welcomed him. And, and like the other accounts in Matthew testified that they probably should have brought out all of their sick and demon-possessed and blind and mute and, and what have you to be raised, to be healed, to be restored. Instead, they are hostile to Jesus and, and Jesus exposes their hostility and their wrong values. What do they value? Well, from verses 33 and 34, it seemed like they valued pigs. They lost a lot of bacon that, that time. It's interesting, Matthew 5, or Mark 5 rather, as I already referenced, 13 tells us that there were 2,000, about 2,000 pigs. It's a lot of bacon. A lot of pigs. Notice, notice Matthew's structure here. I want you to see that, and, and it's a little bit easier to see in the original, but, but look at this. The, the herdsmen, read with me, verse 33. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything. And this word, including, it's really like and. And what happened to the demoniacs? So, so they go into the city, right? They're, they're watching the pigs and they see what happens. Those who are taking care of the pigs. They're hired men, probably, to take care of this business. And they're watching what happened. Well, they, they go back to the city and they, they tell everybody about them. And, and no matter or, or no doubt, they, they told the story in such a way that would exonerate them from, from any blame. And they pinned all the blame on this man who showed up, this Jesus. And what was the main emphasis of their report? What was the big story? The big story was, we lost our pigs. Look at verse 33. The men went and they reported everything. They reported everything. They told them what happened to the pigs. And yeah, by the way, they, they also told them about what happened to the demoniacs too. That's the, the emphasis in verse 33. Uh, yeah, the two crazies up in the tombs. Yeah, they were also healed, but we lost our pigs. And it's not our fault. It's Jesus' fault. And behold, once again, Matthew 
here in verse 34, he intends to arrest our attention, and he says, and behold, behold, something unique, something radical, something crazy is about to happen here. The whole city comes out. We got to see this man. What in the world is going on? And they go out there, and they see Jesus. They see Jesus. Only they, they don't worship him, but they implore this great man to get out of town. Get out. And it's interesting, and I don't know if Matthew means to highlight this aspect or not, but the, the term that was used by these men as they implored him is exactly the same term that the demons used previously to implore Jesus or to entreat Jesus to be sent into the pigs. Such hostility both on the part of demons and on the part of the people who are absolutely blinded by sin and they do not appreciate Jesus Christ. And it seems that Jesus knew that by allowing the demons to enter the pigs, the entire herd would die. He knew that. Obviously, he knows. And in so doing, Jesus exposes the distorted values of these people. Dia Carson says that they preferred pigs to persons, swine to the Savior. This is unthinkable, right? Well, I think that this should move us now to reflect on our own values. We're so quick to judge. We're quick to judge the, the disciples, you know, who, who are freaking out in the storm. And we're like, well, man, you are with Jesus. How can you not believe that he is the, you know, son of God and he has power to silence? And we freak out in our own storms. And I think we could be quick to, to forget that we too were blinded, that we too needed God's mercy. We didn't want to do anything with Jesus until he reached down and until he saved us. What should you value most in life? What does Christ designate as truly valuable here? Christ or swine? For us, the more appropriate question might be Christ or money, Christ or popularity, Christ or convenience. It seems like it's another Application of his Sermon on the Mount, isn't it, from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew eight twenty four or 27 says, what kind of man is this? What kind of man is this? And Matthew says, Jesus is the son of God who has authority and willingness to rescue the powerless and unwilling from their bondage to sin. Beloved, Jesus, knowing ahead the reaction of the city, went forward and demonstrated his love and his kindness towards these men. Even though people are powerless to deal with the powerful forces of darkness, and in many cases they are unwilling, Jesus, the Son of God, is both able and willing to rescue. And for that, we just need to worship our, our Lord. We need to worship Jesus Christ. We need to go back and consider where we were before and in many cases, where we are right now, we continually need his grace to be rescued, to be restored. How should we react to the word this morning? Well, number one, we should worship Jesus. 
We should worship him. Jesus is demonstrating over and over again what he deems truly valuable, and that is himself. Himself. He wants others to recognize him as Lord, and he's relentlessly working towards that end, even when others can't and won't recognize him. What are we valuing today? Christ and salvation of people, or maybe our modern forms of swine. I hope we will all respond today by, by singing this song, Take the World, but Give Me Jesus. Worship Jesus. And number two, I want us to see that this account here is meant to teach us something about Jesus. He had the power to save. So friends, he went where no one else would go. Church, we, we too, I think, looking at his example We need to look for such opportunities to preach the gospel because in it, in the gospel, not in us, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ is power of God. Remember what Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's why we go. Why do we proclaim the gospel to someone who we think is hopeless, helpless, beyond any help? Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus can. Why? Because he did the same thing to us. When we ran away, he ran after. And he restored and he opened up our blinded eyes so that we may see, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, to behold the glories of Christ. And that's why we go. That's why we learn from him and that's why we preach Jesus Christ because it is not in us. It is all in him and in the power of his saving word. May God increase our passion for Jesus as we pursue to know him and as we pursue others to tell of him. Be encouraged, church. Father, I want to praise you once again for opening up our eyes, for demonstrating through this account that Jesus is the son of God and we believe that he is the son of God because he came to save us, sinners, unworthy, unwilling. We thank you for the spirit that convicted us of sin, that caused us to focus on Jesus, regenerated us, And we repented of our sin and we trust you, Lord, and we praise you for that, that you now hold us in your hand and you promised that nothing would ever happen to us in order to put our salvation in jeopardy. Thank you. Only someone who is the son of God can perform such a miracle. And as we look to Jesus and as we look to this account of his mercy towards those who don't deserve it, seeing ourselves in it, let us run. Let us run and let us do the same to others. Empowered by the gospel, proclaim it boldly, unashamedly, for your name's sake. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.